Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 25 today and begin uh, with chapter 26 up to verse 5. We're continuing in our series through the book of Genesis. And I, I've got to remind you that, uh, that as we read in Genesis, what we're reading are true events. These are real people that lived. These are real things that happened. But that God has also so ordained these things... Uh, so, so divinely superintended these things that they would also reveal to us something about who He is, what He's doing in the world, who we are, and what's required of us. And so this morning, as we, we consider the text, we're going to look into the details. We're, we're going to consider certainly the historical details of what has happened here. But what we've got to do is then ask the questions. We've got to press into those details to understand more about God, more about what He's doing and who we are and what's required of us. Now, we're in that part of Genesis where we, having begun Genesis, we started with the creation story. Uh, we then read about the fall, how God had promised life that they would but obey Him. Uh, but they didn't. They sinned. There was the fall and death came and all of us who are descended from Adam then are under that curse and die. God, however, in His grace and in His mercy has not left us under that judgment, but has sent a Savior, His Son, to deliver us. Uh, and He's done all of this in the context of, of promises that we refer to as covenants. Scripture refers to these as covenants. And we're in that part of Genesis where the, the particular covenant that's unfolding is the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant God made with Abraham was one that He made with Abraham and his offspring. We're going to talk more about that this morning. That, that covenant made with Abraham and his offspring, those offspring are continuing even today. We, who are trusting in Christ, belong to those offspring. We are a part of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. So we're, we're, we're reading and considering this unfolding covenant in history. And it was true not only for Abraham, but for his son Isaac. And now his son Isaac, as we saw last week, has had two children, twins, Jacob and Esau. We're going to begin to see how their story unfolds this morning. There are these two brothers. We're going to see two completely different perspectives, two completely different postures towards the covenant promises and what is, is contained in those promises. With Esau, we're going to see this morning a temporal perspective, a time-bound perspective, a perspective that says there is nothing beyond this life. And in Jacob, Though it's, it's, it's fairly implicit, we're going to have to look carefully at Jacob's part in the story. We're going to see somebody who has an eternal perspective. One who knows that this life is true, this life is real, this life matters, but that this life is only a preamble to an eternity together, either with God in fellowship with Him and with His people forever, or under His wrath because of our sin. And then as we turn that corner into chapter 26... God is going to visit Isaac and reiterate to Isaac the promises that he made to Abraham and say, not only did I make these promises to him, I made these promises to his offspring, and you, Isaac, are that offspring. I don't think it's any accident that these two 
narratives are right next to one another. What we get in those opening verses of chapter 26 is not just a reiteration of the promise to Isaac. The story's not simply advancing in that respect. But what we're seeing, what we're hearing in these opening verses of chapter 26 are the very promises that Jacob so desperately desires and Esau so easily despises. We're seeing what was at stake in this interaction between Jacob and Esau. So keep that in mind as we read this morning. We're going to learn some lessons from Esau in particular, but also from Jacob as well, about the promises of God and our relationship to them. Let me pray and we'll read the text. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you. Uh, that, that you have, in fact, been at work in history not only to, uh, to love and to serve and to, to care for and be a refuge for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that even in doing those things, God, in your wisdom and in your power, uh, you, were, you were preparing to reveal to even us now, 4,000 years later, the truth about who you are and what you're doing. Father, we thank you that you've loved us well enough to preserve these things, to tell us these things, to teach us these things. And we pray that those of us who know Christ this morning uh, would be encouraged and strengthened, that our hope and our, our resolve, even by the, the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, to pursue hard after righteousness, hard after the promises, that that resolve would be renewed. Father, we pray that if there are any in the hearing of this word this morning who have not believed, either they've never heard or they've always rejected and despised, Father, I pray that they would hear this gospel and believe this morning, that your spirit would do this work in their hearts and their minds. We pray all of this would be for the good of, of the kingdom, of, of course, for the good of us, your people, but all, uh, all, always, Father, in the end for your glory. We pray that everything that you do would result in praise being raised up to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 25. We're going to begin in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So three things this morning. The first is the hopelessness of a temporal perspective. The hopelessness of a temporal perspective 
perspective. Second, the promise of an eternal perspective. The promise of an eternal perspective. And finally, the relentless faithfulness of our God. The relentless faithfulness of our God. First, the hopelessness of a temporal perspective. I want you to look at Esau throughout this this first passage this morning. We're told by the narrator that he was exhausted. And then Esau himself says, give me something to eat. I'm exhausted. And and bound up in this exhaustion is by implication a a hunger. He's hungry. There's there's a, a melodramatic quality to his statement here where Jacob says, give me your birthright. Sell it to me now for this food. And he says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? We should not think for a moment that we, the reader, are expected to actually believe that Esau is near death. Esau is not near death. Uh, He's come in from the field, from hunting and doing the things that he does. He is probably desperately hungry. We ourselves will use language like this today, don't we? We'll not only say, I'm starving, we'll even say, I'm starving to death, right? And all we're doing is is expressing the, the experience of a profound hunger, but none of us for a moment means or believes, expects anyone around us to think we mean that if we don't get food imminently, that we will die. It's important for us to recognize that Esau is being melodramatic here because it, it further illustrates just how careless he's being with the promises. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? For food and drink, he sold his eternity and his offspring's eternity. Let's talk about a birthright for a second. It's not something we we talk about much today or language that we tend to use. A birthright in this context, in this place and time, is the right of the firstborn son to inherit title and all property from the father. It wasn't just true for this family. Abraham's not the only one in the world who's ever had a birthright. He's not the only person at this time who has a birthright. There's an understanding culturally that this is how possessions and titles are passed from one generation to the next. Esau is the firstborn. He is the one to whom the birthright has come. We should not for a moment either imagine that he doesn't know that he has a birthright or what that birthright is. You see, the birthright that that was... Esau's by right is not just any birthright. In the same way today that we understand the idea of inheritance, uh, that the parents pass away and their things potentially are inherited by their offspring. And no two families necessarily have the same kind of inheritance. Some families have absolutely no need for any kind of estate action after they've passed away. They have nothing to pass on to their children. Others have profound wealth to pass on to their children. The same is the case here. Abraham is not only a wealthy man, wealthy even by their standards and by the standards of their neighbors. Abraham has the most unique birthright to pass on to his firstborn of anyone in the history of man. He has the covenant 
promises of God made to Abraham alone with his offspring. That's the birthright. And we, we need to pause long enough to recognize Esau knows that birthright. Can you imagine for a moment that Abraham and everything that God did with and for Abraham, everything he said to him and promised to him and, and all of the time that it took certainly from Abraham's perspective and Sarah's perspective, for God to keep that promise by the giving of a son. And then to, to tell him to take this probably teenage son up to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him. Do we imagine for a moment that the man who laid on that altar, whose own father held a knife over his throat and said to him, don't worry, son, God told me to do this, has not then followed up and said, tell me more about this God. And what in the world is he doing? Help me understand for a moment, dad, why it is he sent us up on the mountain and that Abraham didn't respond to Isaac in that conversation and say, look at the kind of God we serve who has placed the ram in the bush as a substitute for you. That this Isaac wouldn't tell his sons of the, the amazing birthright that belongs to him and will pass to Esau. As we read about what Esau does here, Know with great confidence that he knows that he has a birthright and he knows what that birthright is. And every suggestion from the text is he doesn't believe. This is ultimately what it means for him to despise his birthright. The action of selling it for a bowl of soup, as Christ will teach us later in the Gospels, that, that it's what comes out of a man that defiles him because it reveals what's in the heart. All that has happened in this text is Esau's heart has been revealed. Look at what he says when Jacob first demands that he sell him his birthright. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Pause for a moment. Think about that. Esau's logic is a clear expression that he sees no eternal value in the birthright. At best, this birthright will pass wealth and title to me. But if I'm dead, what good is that to me? Had he believed that there was eternal value, he would have taken, the, he would have kept the birthright. He would have said, by no means. This is not a man. We're going to talk about Jacob in a minute. Let's be clear. This is not a man who has no choice. Esau has a choice. I mean, presumably, Jacob's not out in the wilderness cooking. He's at home. Esau, therefore, is at home. He's got a mom still who will cook for him. He's, he's moments away from arriving in the tents of his parents. And for a song, he sells his eternity. If he believed what his father Isaac had told him about the promises that God had made that were for Isaac and for Esau, if he had believed, he would not have despised his birthright. But he sees no value in it. He, it's even worse than that. He's so time-bound, he's not even thinking of his own children. 
And he may or may not have children at this point, but certainly he will and would have hoped to if he didn't already. And even if he doesn't believe in the eternal value of the, the birthright, there's at least a continuing temporal value. At least, at least hang on to it for your kids. There's, there's a, an emphatic element to this when he says, not only I am about to die of what use is a birthright, but he says of what use is a birthright to me. Esau cares only about himself. He cares only about what he gains. He cares only about this moment. He would, he would meet the pangs of hunger by selling his future and the future of his children and his eternity. He is bound in the moment. And there is a hopelessness to that perspective. He took that food, and look at how the, the text expresses it. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Don't you know that after he took the last bite, whatever joy there might have been, whatever satisfaction there might have been in the quality of that stew, disappeared, spent. Within an hour or two, the, the, the contentment of a full belly would have faded. Within a day, it's passed through him and returned to dust. And it's gone. And so is the birthright. Brothers and sisters... We have held out to us this promise of eternity, the promise of ruling and reigning in the new heavens and the new earth, life together forever with our Creator and Redeemer. I want you to understand this, the very, the very not, not like, it's not a simile, it's not a metaphor, it's not even a type. We talk about types a lot in the Old Testament, right? It, it's not a foreshadowing or a prefiguring. The very birthright Esau despised is our birthright the very one that birthright is all of the promises of God made to Abraham and his offspring and those are the very promises that we come into in the gospel will we be satisfied with temporal wealth and health will we be satisfied with a little power now a little influence now. There's nothing wrong with, with being wealthy, nothing wrong with being healthy, nothing wrong with having power and influence. No more so than there was with Esau being hungry and wanting a meal. But when those things become our only hope, when we are willing to sell our relationship with Christ in order to get or keep those things, we may very well get them, but we will lose Christ. Christ says in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. Will we be satisfied with the temporal joy that comes with sin? The satisfaction of our 
temporal appetites contrary to God's law, contrary to what he's told us is good for us. Listen, I'm not talking about our moral failures as we fight against our sin, as we grieve and hate sin. All of us are, who are in Christ are wrestling with that. We're at war with the flesh. And some days, by the grace and power of God and the Holy Spirit working in us, we overcome those temptations. And some days we don't. There's a warfare happening in every one, one of us. I'm not talking about uh, those moments. I'm talking about a perspective, an outlook, an understanding of the world, and that thing in which, and, and truly, to say it rightly, that person in which is all our hope. If your perspective is only for the here and now, and it's not an eternal perspective, you have misunderstood at best and despised at worst the promises of God. If, you, if you're hearing this this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, I've heard the gospel and believed it, uh, therefore I've not despised the promises, this point's not for me, I'll wait patiently for the next point to come along. I want to encourage you that while it may be possible for us to not genuinely despise while it may be possible for us to have the eternal perspective we're going to talk about next, that warfare that I mentioned a second ago, the nature of that warfare is we are constantly tempted to forget and ignore the eternal perspective in favor of the temporal. Our flesh is constantly saying to us, give to me now and I will pay anything. Let me have And while it may not always be true of all of our sin, it's true often enough that even as we struggle, we know what's happening. We know this is wrong. We know we are in the midst of temptation. And I want you to, to begin thinking to yourself that what is at stake in this temptation is whether or not I will behave as one who has an eternal perspective, who knows the covenant promises, believes the covenant promises, and wants to live according to the covenant promises, or I am going to be one who would rather serve my appetites now and have what I want now. It's two different ways of living. And those who are in Christ will live as those who know and believe the promises. It may be that you know good and well you don't have this eternal perspective, that you've come into this place this morning. You're what our, our academics would call a materialist. That there, there is no spiritual reality. That all of us are, are just biological material. That, that we have some wonderful capacity to think and to relate, but that in the same way that you didn't exist before you were born, before you were conceived, you will not exist after you die. And so you've got to make the best of this life now. That's Esau's perspective. And I want you to know that regardless of what family you were born into, regardless of what you have believed, regardless of what you have done in and with your life up until this very morning, the birthright is held out to you. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of salvation, in need of deliverance, 
This is the birthright. The birthright is the promise of salvation. It is the promise of deliverance from the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And sin may sound like one of those Christian words, one of those theological words. Listen to me. If you're hanging up on the idea of sin, just ask yourself, are you the person you want to be? You're not. In the deep, dark recesses of your mind where you do your best not to go, to ignore and to cover up and to not think about and to drown out with social media or whatever it is that you like to spend your time doing, you know good and well you have not even met your own standards. And listen to me, your standards come nowhere close to the perfect standard that God requires. Jesus Christ himself says so in the Gospels. You must be perfect. How perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect. If there was not a message from God, a promise to deliver you from the judgment you deserve, there would be nothing but despair in Christ's teaching. If we must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, every one of us is doomed. But God has said, I will deliver you. I will save you. This is the nature of that birthright. Christ himself and everything he is and everything he's done for the sake of his people. Are you one of his people? If you are, the birthright is yours. Let's live as though it belongs to us. Second, this morning, the promise of an eternal perspective. In contrast to Esau's time-bound perspective, consider Jacob. It's true that, that Jacob has little to say and does little in this narrative, but what little he says and does speaks volumes. And we also need to be careful. If you know your Bible, we need to be careful not to read everything else that we know about Jacob back into this narrative. Jacob, at times, does not behave in a commendable way. In fact, he is often thought of by those who know the, the Scripture as the deceiver. Don't read that back into this text. Jacob has done no such thing. There's no deceit in Jacob here. Jacob has said boldly and baldly, Give me your birthright. Esau's under no obligation to do it. We've already talked about the fact that it's, he's not going to die if he doesn't eat this stew. He's perfectly capable of walking away and finding food elsewhere. Jacob is no deceiver here. But what we do see in Jacob is a recognition of the value of the birthright. What, what happens here is not unfair, it's not unkind, it's not underhanded. Jacob has done nothing different than any one of us would do when we see a car and we want the car and we know the car is worth $20,000 and we say to the seller, I'll give you $5,000 for it. And the seller says, take it, I just need it gone. Have you cheated the seller? By no means. You have made an offer and the seller has accepted. Jacob has not cheated Esau. Jacob knows the value of these promises. And he says to Esau, who also knows the value of the promises, will you give them to me for a bowl of soup? And Esau says, why not? 
take it. I don't need it. If I don't get a bowl of soup, I'm good as dead, and I won't have any use for it anyways. Take it. Jacob, in, in these, these brief, in his, his determination here, sell me your birthright now. Swear to me now. We see expressed in those few words that Jacob speaks a very clear understanding and value to the promises that belong to the birthright. If we don't look carefully, we'll miss the contrast in these two perspectives. Esau, again, is being overdramatic, careless with eternity. Jacob is pursuing hard after. Jacob knows what the birthright entails, as certainly as Esau does, and Jacob wants that birthright. Jacob sees an opportunity, and he takes it. I suspect Jacob not only knew the covenant promises of God to Abraham, and Isaac, and that those promises would pass to the firstborn son. But I think Jacob knew that Esau despised it. I think this is, this is why Jacob makes such an absurd offer to Esau. He's watched Esau, and he's recognized. Esau does not value these promises. Esau despises these promises. I'll bet you, for a bowl of soup on a hungry day, I can make those promises mine. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob's looking for his opportunity. He wants those promises, and he will have those promises. And in fact, it works. What does it look like for us to pursue hard after the promises? Well, it, it begins for us as it does for Jacob with knowing the promises. What is promised? What is held out? What is this birthright that belongs to the offspring of Abraham? And it is, at its, at its most fundamental, this birthright is a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, is held out to anyone who will believe and repent. Unlike the circumstance we see here in the text where only one of these sons is going to get this birthright. We see in the coming generations of this story that the birthright goes to Jacob. But from Jacob it goes to all twelve of his sons. And from his twelve sons to all of those who were born to those twelve. All of those who belong to what becomes the people of Israel. All of them receive the birthright, if they will believe. And as God reveals over time, as that, that revelation unfolds in history, we learn that it turns out it's not a birthright literally considered. It is not something that we, we get merely by birth. Not a physical birth. It's a birthright that is ours according to a spiritual birth. We are offspring of Abraham, Paul says in the New Testament, if we believe. This is the birthright that's held out to us. It's the birthright that Jacob wants. And it's our birthright if we will believe and repent. 
It begins for us, as it does for Jacob, with knowing the promises. It also means treasuring the promises. God's promises to us ought to be precious. They're to be believed and trusted, clung to, sought after, repeated to ourselves and to one another, hoped for, rejoiced over, studied, proclaimed to the lost. These promises reveal the very heart and character of our God our Creator and our Redeemer. In them we know His love, grace, mercy, patience, His kindness, His goodness, His wisdom, even His justice is revealed in these promises. They tell us who we are. These promises establish our true identity in Christ. It's this truth that's behind Paul's teaching when in Colossians 3... 1 through 4, he says, If then you have been raised with God, seek the things that are above. What does it look like for us to pursue hard after the promises? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. An eternal perspective, not a time-bound perspective. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is what it looks like for us, Christian brothers and sisters, to pursue hard after the birthright to celebrate that birthright, to cling to it, to place all of our hope in Christ who is that birthright. It means fighting to resist the temptation to sell the promises for immediate gratification. It means being willing to be poor now, powerless now, to suffer now, if that is what is required of us, to be hungry now, to endure whatever must be endured to enter into the eternal promises of God. Children, students, uh, in, in a way that according to God's design is, is beautiful to us and precious to us, you have been born into a family that knows Christ. In a way that is not true for those who are born into unbelieving families, you've been born into a family that knows Christ, that trusts Christ, that has this birthright, and your parents are, are determined to hand this birthright to you, that you would believe, that you would repent. And as you grow up into an understanding of what it is that God has promised to you, it is your calling to take hold of that birthright like Jacob, to desire that birthright, to want that birthright, you will have the opportunity, as all of us do and continue to, but you will have the opportunity to despise the promises of God in the same way that Esau did. Don't despise those promises. Believe them, cling to them. Want them the way that you want that Christmas present the way that you want uh, that thing that, that you have to have right now, 
that, that urge in you, and, and kids, I'm still talking to you, to you and, the, and students who don't like to be called kids anymore, right? And adults, frankly, let's be honest, it's not like we grow out of this, right? That urge that you have to want that thing, even things that are okay to want, but the overwhelming urge, you have to have it. You must have it right now. You will pitch a fit in front of your parents and in front of everybody else in the store. You will talk about it all the time. You will beg your parents to give it to you for Christmas. You might even, if you have the ability to like mow lawns or wash cars or, or whatever it is that's available in your neighborhood, you may even scrape the money together to get it yourself. That urge, oh, that's a good urge. It's an excellent urge. It is an urge God gave to you. But the object of your desire, the object of your desire is Christ. Take that, that feeling of desire, that determination that at all costs you will get, and turn that to Christ. Desire Christ. The way you desire that trinket that, that some of you, even, even, even some of you who are still in single-digit years, you know, it, you know this is true, that that thing you, you so desperately wanted and you had to have and you pitched a fit and you might have even gotten in trouble because you weren't behaving very well because you wanted it so badly and somehow you finally got it. Do you even know where it is right now? Is it even functional anymore? Was all of that worth it? Listen to me, and I, I'm still talking to the, the, the younger among us, but if you're not eavesdropping as someone who's older, you're missing out here. Listen, Christ will never disappoint. He will never wear out. He will never break down. You will never find yourself thinking, I got that, and now what's next? Christ is all in all, brothers and sisters. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble because I go, I've gone long the last two weeks, really long, and I, even I feel bad about how long I've gone. So we're going to move quickly and wrap up here. The last point is the relentless faithfulness of our God. Listen, all the promises in the world are worth nothing if the one who's making them can't or won't keep them. And this is the most glorious truth of the promises that God has made to his people, is he always keeps his promises. Isaac knows that he belongs. Genesis 17, 7 says, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations to an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Isaac knows that promise was made to Abraham. He knows it's his. And it seems so improbable that it would be ours as well. We're so far removed from Abraham. It's been 4,000 years since these words were spoken. 
I, I personally am not Jewish. I don't share the language, the culture, the time, or the place with Abraham. And yet when God said, your offspring after you, he was talking about me. And every single one of you who will trust in Christ and repent of your sins. How can that be? It's the relentless faithfulness of God to keep his promises, to pursue his children, his lost sheep, his covenant people, through time and space until every last one has been gathered to himself. Spurgeon is famous for having referred to the Holy Spirit as the heavenly hound. God relentlessly pursues us and relentlessly keeps his promises to us. All saints, this is our hope, that God has promised to give himself to us and us to him to be in joyful, life-giving fellowship with us forever. And God always keeps his promises. Two passages I'm going to read and then we're done for the morning. And these are passages that they are worth meditating on and memorizing. Paul in Romans 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's true for us right now. And in Revelation, John holds this out to us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is our birthright. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are two passages, again, that are worth memorizing, meditating upon, so that you can draw on them in days of poverty and powerlessness and pain, so that we may be reminded that these days are numbered and that the joys that will be ours will be so complete in the end that it will set all things right and make all things new. I'm fond of this particular C.S. Lewis quote. 
from a book that he wrote called The Great Divorce, which has nothing to do with marriage. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this, and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. There's an eternal reality, hope held out to those who will believe. This is our birthright, brothers and sisters. And if you walked into this place this morning without that eternal perspective, that birthright is held out to you as well. This good news, this gospel is for you as well. And I would implore you to come to me after the service, immediately after the service. The piano will still be playing. Come to me. Come to Pastor Nathan in the Blue Blazer here, or any of our, our ruling elders, or anybody you know in the room who knows Jesus. I promise you, they are desperate to tell you more about this birthright. Do not delay. Hebrews chapter 12 brings us back to Esau. And the author of Hebrews says, Don't be like Esau, who despised his birthright, and then when he desperately wanted it back and begged, even in tears, found no relief and received no birthright. The author of Hebrews says, there was no occasion for repentance for Esau. That's not true for you now. You still draw breath now. But the moment Christ returns or you draw your last breath like Esau, if you have despised the promises of God, there will be no opportunity for repentance. Don't wait. Come to us today. These are the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our birthright. Let's rejoice. Let's celebrate and let's cling to that birthright for all it's worth. Let's pray.